Today we're going to be in the book of Isaiah and chapter 40. The passage today is going to talk about comfort, and it's going to give that comfort to those in exile. And so I wanted to at least define those two terms before we begin. Exile, by dictionary terms, is uh, being barred from your own country, typically for political or punitive reasons. In short, those that are exiled are those that have been kicked out of the place they called home and not allowed to return, and usually as a form of punishment. The word comfort, while it may to us uh, have the idea of a a warm, fuzzy blanket, is uh, in biblical terms more the idea of of something that strengthens or encourages. And my prayer today is that God does that through his word, as he did to the exiles in uh, the Jewish exiles in Babylon. There will be the context of our message today, but also to those of us who uh, are hearing his word today, who are still in exile, away from our ultimate home, which is to be in God's presence uh, with him forever. With that, I'm, um, I'm going to read the passage, and then we're going to take a, a few moments where I invite you uh, to calm your heart uh, from the things of this morning already, to pray that God would illuminate our hearts to receive his word in such a way that it wouldn't just be intellectual knowledge that we would be receiving, but the living word of God that transforms us more and more into his image. So if you are in Isaiah 40, follow along with me. Comfort, comfort my people, says God, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry, and I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules with him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. This is the word of the Lord.
Now, Father, as we have Your Word open, we confess our weaknesses. We confess how easily distracted we are. We confess that we put our trust in other things. But as Your Word lays open before us, Lord, we confess our total dependency on You. That You would even through our weakness, even through our distractions, even through the sin in our lives, that your word would speak clearly to our hearts. And there, Lord, that we would be rejuvenated and encouraged and comforted by it. That it would be life to us. And that we would rest in it. Lord, I ask for those that may be here this morning who do not know you, that your spirit would use your word to convict their hearts of their estrangement from their creator and from their God. That you would use even this morning by the power of your spirit to draw them to yourself where they would see their God. They would behold the Savior that you have sent. They would surrender their lives to Him. Lord, ultimately, I ask that You would glorify Yourself in Your Word now. Because we are grass. Our time comes and goes, but we as individuals, our time in this world fades. But Your Word endures forever. And it glorifies You. Lord, we step out of this world and into eternity where we will either be with You are separated from you for eternity. With the gravity of these moments, Lord, uh, not be missed. Would you speak to us through your word? Would you encourage us and transform us now? In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Uh, so Isaiah 40, uh, we are jumping into the middle of a book which always means that we owe it to ourselves to find some context. Isaiah chapter 1 through 39, God has been using the prophet to warn Judah and Jerusalem that their sins have risen up to God and he's been calling them back to turn away from their sins and to turn back towards him in the keeping of the law and in those, the, the, the living out of their faith. God had called Israel to be his special people, his chosen people, that they would be a light to the nations. But instead of being a light to the nations, Isaiah has been telling them they've begun to look just like the nations. They, they, They live like the nations while they still have the temple among them. Their, their lives don't reflect the truth of, of their identity. And, and by the time that we get to chapter 39, Assyria has come and taken the ten northern tribes captive and has destroyed them. And chapter 39 ends when, if you know the, the Bible story, Assyria had come against the city of Jerusalem and King Hezekiah and threatened to destroy them and take them captive as well. But God had miraculously intervened and saved Hezekiah and the city of Jerusalem. 
And as Assyria went home in defeat, envoys came from Babylon. And King Hezekiah opened up the treasury of the temple and showed those envoys everything in his kingdom. And chapter 39 in Isaiah ends with that. And as we pick up in chapter 40, what is assumed is that we know that those same envoys from Babylon went back to Babylon and told King Nebuchadnezzar there about all that they had seen. And God then stirred in the King Nebuchadnezzar's heart to raise up an army and come against Judah and Jerusalem because the time of warning was done. And now God's judgment that had been prophesied by Isaiah in the first 39 chapters had arrived at their doorstep. And the story is that Nebuchadnezzar fought against Jerusalem, set up siege towers, starved them out. And while we're not given that in in Isaiah, the Bible's not silent on that and we can read about it in the books of Lamentation in Chronicles and Kings. We can also find uh, Jeremiah speaking about it. And it was a horrible time of judgment that came against them. And in waves, they were taken away captive into Babylon. And they found themselves there as second-class citizens in exile, as people living among the godless, as Jews who had seen their city torn down, their loved ones butchered, and their temple burned to the ground by Nebuchadnezzar. And so the context of chapter 40 is this. What must a people like that have felt living in exile? I think it's almost impossible for us to truly understand what it would have felt like to, see, to, to be without the temple because we have no equivalent to that in our culture or, or in our religion. The, the temple was the very dwelling place of God. And these were people who had been given God's promises. They were going to be a nation and a holy people unto God. He was going to be their God and he was going to establish his kingdom on earth with Jerusalem as the head of it, his very footstool in the temple. But now they had seen that temple wrecked and ruined and torn down and the holy city burnt and the people butchered and they were living far away under the oppression of Gentiles. To add to that, The ancient Near East culture usually had the mindset that the wars that were fought on earth were the physical representations of the wars that were fought in the heavens between the deities. And that those that conquered and and triumphed on earth were a physical manifestation of the stronger deity in the heavenly realms that had conquered the other gods. We see this uh, played out, or we see it spoken to, earlier in Isaiah, when the Assyrians came against the, uh, the people of, uh, of Jerusalem. In Isaiah 36, 18 through 20, and if you hear Sennacherib's taunts, you'll hear the ideas of these physical wars really just being manifestations of gods who fought each other in heaven. Picking up in 18. 
Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the other gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hands of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of some other foreign land? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. See, so the people that were in exile here have, are dealing with disillusionment, disappointment, and they maybe are asking themselves the questions, does God, does God even want to save us? I, I, Isaiah warned us and warned us about our sins and have our sins come to the place that maybe Yahweh God has decided that he's done with us? Does God want to bring us back home? Can God save us? Or maybe the Babylonian gods overthrew Yahweh. Maybe he's not powerful enough after all. Maybe God is not a covenant-keeping God. And lastly, will God save us? They were in captivity for 70 years. A generation had gone by. Maybe they were left now with the choice to just assimilate into the Babylonian culture. To forget that they were a people called by God with a special covenant with their God. And just to try to make do where they were. And into these people, God moves on the heart of Isaiah to bring them a message. And that message is comfort. It's not a message of, I told you so. I warned you and I warned you and I warned you. And then this is what you get. Although God certainly had the right to do that. It's not a message of, I'm through with you. Although God certainly had the right to do that. It's a message of comfort. Listen to the message in the context of those Babylonian exiles this morning. And then we're going to move that message forward in time. Till hopefully this morning we arrive right here today. And what the Bible would say to us. Firstly, it says, comfort, comfort my people, says God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. Cry what? That your warfare has ended. Who was their enemy? Was it the Babylonians? No, God had called the Babylonians as an instrument of his judgment because the real problem was that they were at enmity with their God. They were estranged from their God. And God acts here on his own to come to them with a message and tell them this good news. You who are wondering... Is God done with us? Have I outsinned God? Has God become my enemy? This is the message Isaiah has for them. No, God says your warfare with him is ended. And how did it end? Because your iniquity has been pardoned. And not only that, but that you will receive from the Lord's hand double for your sins. What message of hope this was. 
This was a, a turning in the book of Isaiah from the first 39 chapters of the Lord's coming judgment and then that assumed part where God's judgment came and utterly destroyed them. And now Isaiah starts chapter 40 in one long glorious poem that is going to take him through chapter 55. And in this he's going to present God's answer for their problem. A voice cries, chapter 3, or verse 3. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Because that's where they were living. Their existence, their reality, their circumstances was the wilderness. Look at how it's described. It's a place with mountains and hills and uneven ground and rough places. They could have, the, the, the people there could have tried to go back home to Jerusalem. It was a 30-day, more or less, walk to get back. But from Babylon to Jerusalem is a wilderness, wild place with mountains and hills and rivers to cross in a very rugged journey. And besides that, they were slaves. They didn't have their freedom. They couldn't have picked up and gone back no matter what. So this highway that is being prepared isn't a highway for the exiles to come back home. Look what it says. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. This was not a highway for the exiles to get back to Jerusalem. This was a highway being prepared for God to come meet them where they were. They were the ones in the wilderness. They were the ones enduring a life of rough places. God in his mercy was the one who had put an end to their warfare, who had pardoned their iniquity, and now was pictured as coming to them. Why? Because in their mindset, it seemed that God was absent, that God had deserted them, that God had left them. He was coming, and the glory of the Lord was going to be revealed to them. They had seen God's glory before. You know where the Bible talks about God's glory being presented? When they had gone through the wilderness wanderings in, in, following Moses, and they had gotten to Mount Sinai, they were all going to go up to Mount Sinai, but they were terrified because God showed up on the top of Mount Sinai. In a cloud and in fire and in earthquakes and lightning, God was there, and Moses alone went up into the glory of God there. And there in God's presence, God gave him the blueprints for a tabernacle. And that tabernacle was going to have one very special cubicle room at the very back of it called the Holy of Holies. And there the Ark of the Covenant was going to be. And between those cherub wings, God was going to present himself gloriously present. So much so that when Moses got that tabernacle built, as you move into the book of Exodus, it says that Moses was going to go in, but the glory of God, the cloud picked up from Mount Sinai, and it came over and it sat down on the Holy of Holies, and it was so powerful, and the glory of God was so there that Moses himself couldn't go in. But the people of the camp knew God was there. And as we move the Bible story forward, that tabernacle is going to turn into a temple. 
And David's going to get from the Lord the blueprints to make a temple. And his son Solomon is going to build that temple. And when you read when that temple is dedicated, what happens? The glory of the Lord sets down over the Holy of Holies, it says, so powerfully that the priests could not stand to minister. But everybody knew that the glory of the Lord was there. And then if we look at this story and where we find ourselves in this context of Isaiah, after Babylon had taken them over, there was another prophet named Ezekiel who God showed in a vision that the glory of the Lord got on his chariot on top of that temple and departed the temple. And now where was the glory of the Lord? Did you know that even though God is going to bring them home from Babylonian captivity as they follow Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah and they build another temple, that there is nowhere mentioned that the glory of the Lord sets down in that new temple like it did in the temple or like it did in the tabernacle? Not only is it nowhere mentioned, but it's doubtful that they even had the Ark of the Covenant by that time that it had already been taken away. So where was the glory of the Lord going to be revealed? Hold on to that thought. And hopefully we'll get back to it. Because all flesh is going to see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. To these people, God was bringing comfort because he was going to lead them back home. He was going to lead them back home by his power. He was going to change the heart of the king who was holding them captive in Babylon so that he was going to willingly release them to go back home and even supply them the things that they needed when they get there. And look at the very next passage as it illustrates God's sovereignty. Six through eight, a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. All its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Those people had no power to get back home because we're grass. I mean, we just came through a summer. That if this illustration was ever going to be appropriate, think about your grass. And how quickly this summer, if you turned that water off, it died. It, oh, it, it has a season. And for a very short season, it flowers and it looks beautiful. And then very, very quickly, it's gone. The, the, the people in captivity could not come back to the Lord because we are that grass. Totally dependent on water totally dependent on care from something other than us. We are totally dependent. Oh yeah, we've got them hanging just to remind us on God's revealed word, on God's grace that gives us faith in the finished work of Christ Jesus, all for God's glory. Listen, we could not come back to God... I'm getting ahead of myself. They could not come back to God from Babylonian captivity. God had to sovereignly come to them. And he did so. He gave them his word here. 
And he says in two ways. At the end of verse 5, the mouth of the Lord is spoken. At the end of verse 8, the word of our God stands forever so that they could have faith in their God who would come to them. Isaiah is going to say it the same way in this poem later on when he says in chapter 52, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. What encouragement, what comfort to people who were in captivity wondering, does God want to save us? Is God powerful enough to save us? Will God save us? And Isaiah writes this poem given to him from the Lord that says, remember, your God is still reigning. And so in verse 8 of 52, the voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. God had not deserted his people. Even when in their sin they inherited his judgment and were exiled from the promised land, God had not deserted them. He came to them. And he came to a king and turned his heart to release them so that they could come back from captivity. He was their good shepherd that would lead them home. And that's what 9 through 11 says. But even when they got back to the promised land, and even when they built the Jerusalem and the walls were built and finished in Nehemiah and the temple was built in Ezra and prophets like Haggai uh, encouraged them and they, they, they started the temple worship again. From that point on, they were never free of Gentile oppression. That new temple was there and they were back in the land, but they were controlled they were controlled by the Babylonians and then by the Persians and the Medes and then the Greeks and then the Romans. And the promises of God didn't seem to be coming fulfillment. And as we go to the end of our Old Testament, we find that the story of the Bible, the story of how God has a people that, that were cast out of Eden and in exile on this earth, but he had come to meet them there through the temple and through the tabernacle. And they were now living for 400 years in between the Old Testament and the New without a word from God. And where was God's glory? And praise God for the New Testament. <laughs> Praise God that Matthew takes up that very same story and says, let me tell you the story of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. And then he goes into this wonderful genealogy that we, if we're tempted, go... But what he's really telling us is, look how Jesus fulfills all of the Old Testament markers to prove that he is exactly the person he says he is. He came through the right line. He checks all of the boxes. This is Emmanuel, God with us. This is, in his first advent, the glory of the Lord being revealed to us. So that John, in his gospel, in John 1, would say, like, say it like this. If you want to turn with me to John 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, 
Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. When did the glory come back? Jesus is the glory of God. Hebrews 1 says he is the radiance of the image of the glory of God. Jesus is what this passage and every passage is talking about. 66 books of the Bible telling one glorious story and pointing us from every direction to one Savior given by God whose name is so wonderful that at that name every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow and declare Him God, Savior, Jesus. And we are in this wonderful Advent season celebrating the fulfillment of Isaiah that God was going to make a way and that His glory was going to come again. And didn't He? What they must have felt like in Jesus' first Advent as they watched Roman soldiers tramps around Jerusalem and with impunity do whatever they wanted putting people to death, taking taxes exorbitantly, crushing the people under Roman occupation. And into this people, God was about to take on flesh and robe Himself. And though the Roman occupation must have looked like hills that would prohibit God's will being done, and mountains and rough places and valleys that would have stopped God from coming and doing what He promised to do, nothing will stop God because the Word of the Lord stands forever. And God had already said in Genesis chapter 3.15, I will send my Messiah and He will come to you and He will bring you back from exile into the presence of God. And nothing the Romans could do about it. And nothing the Jewish high priest could do about it. No mountain was going to stop God. No valley was going to stop God. Because the passage says that he'll bring every mountain and hill low. And he'll bring up every valley. He'll make every rough place level. And that's what he did when Mary and Joseph went to Bethlehem. And a little baby was born. And God entered into our reality. And that's what we celebrate this season, the first Advent. But did you know there's more to that? Because if we left it just back there 2,200 years ago, roughly, is that right? 2,000 years ago? 2,023, almost four years ago. I digress. I'm an English major. I say that often. Look, I can spell the year, but I couldn't mathematically work us up to where we are to save my life. If we left that story back in the Bible in Jesus' day, we would just be telling a good story. But you know the truth of it is? Today we all live as exiles. And just like those Babylonian captives that looked around and may have considered themselves second-class citizens, 
living under the oppressive hand of the Babylonians? Or the, the believers in Jesus' day in Jerusalem who may have looked around at the Roman oppression and felt themselves to be powerless and may have said, is God done with us? Does God want to save us? But there may be some in our presence right now who have wrestled through the course of this year with repetitive sins, who have said, I'm sorry to God so often that it feels like in their heart of hearts, doubt has crept in. And they say, oh, is God done with me? Or the way one Andrew Peterson song says, it's the fear that I'll fall one too many times. It's the fear that his love is no greater than mine. And as that sets in, we look around at our reality that we live in, and maybe we think, have the godless won? They seem to have positions of power. They seem to be growing in that power. The tide seems to move against those that believe in God and serve Jesus. But I remind you, this is not our home. We're in exile. Our real home is with our creator, God, our father. Our real home was pictured for us in a garden where things worked together. And we, man and woman, were given a wonderful relationship where we communicated with each other. And hand in hand in harmony, it was our responsibility to go out and subdue and conquer and, and be fruitful and multiply. And we were supposed to do it seamlessly in the presence of God Almighty. We're pictured in a wonderful garden. And in the middle of that garden, there was two trees. And one of those trees, the tree of life, was supposed to be the very place where they could commune with God. The tree wasn't God, but through the tree, the fruit that grew, they were going to receive life, the kind of life that never ends. That's our home. Where there is no sin, there is no disappointment, there is no disease, there's love and joy and peace and patience. That's our home. Anybody want to go home? Man. But we're in exile. And even this Christmas season, I guarantee you there's people who pine away for some sense of that kind of world and may look at pretty Christmas lights and may try to recollect magical moments from Christmas's past as kids to try to capture a feeling that is different from the reality we live in. But I have to tell you this, all the Christmas songs fade, the lights only cover a, a normal house and bushes. The fun is fun for a season. The food has consequences. Listen, it's not about Christmas to escape our reality. This is the season to remember that God made a way to come into our reality to lead us back home. Amen? Oh, listen. God would say to us today, comfort, comfort my people. 
The Bible says that we are friendship with the world is enmity against God. That means our natural heart that is infatuated with the things of the world makes us selfish and self-centered and that's not how God made us in his image and it makes us enmity and enemies of God. And that's by birth. But we choose to act out on that every day of our lives, exercising our selfishness in hurting one another, in hoarding to ourselves, and in not giving God the worship that he deserves. And God says to us, but your enmity against me has ended. And your iniquity has been pardoned. Yeah, but God, you... Lord, if I'm honest, like my heart sometimes doubts because the sin factory that it is, I have found myself so many times saying sorry for my sin, and those aren't a multiplicity of sins, but I'm thinking of one or two specifically that just eat my lunch. God, are you done with me? And God says, no, no, listen. I'll bring down every mountain between you and I. I'll raise every valley between you and I. I'll make the rough places flat between you and I. And I'm going to show my glory in you. How would you do that, Lord? His name is Jesus. And while Jesus was the glory of God that returned back to the earth, you know what happened on Acts chapter 2? That glory filled a new temple. Not a temple made with the hands of, of man anymore, but a temple made of living stones, Peter says. We are that temple, and God's glory is being revealed in you and in I as we live in obedience and follow Him. I did not say live in perfection. I said live in obedience as we try to follow God as He leads us in this life. I want to end in comfort to us out of chapter uh, Isaiah 49 through 11. And I just want to draw us to this. Look at how God describes himself. At the end of uh, verse 9, it says, Behold your God. (laughs) Let's do that for a moment. Let's see God with us, Jesus, coming to take on flesh in that first advent. And coming to bear our sorrows and our shame. Coming to take on our sin. So much so that when he prayed in the garden, if there be any other way. When the weight of your sin set on Christ's shoulders, he bled great drops of blood through his sweat glands. As he took your sin. That's the kind of God who came to us as he took my sin. Who will he be? Behold, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. Jesus Christ is strong enough to save you. Jesus Christ has all the authority in heaven and on earth. And we and he claims you as his blood-bought Child, there is no height nor depth, no past or present that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus.
Woo! If that's not comfort, I don't have anything left to give you. Comfort my people. Lean into what he says, the word of God that will stand forever. We just talked about it in youth. But how can we lean on promises we don't know? Because you've got to know the word of God so that you can lean into those promises. But it's more than that. He says, behold, his reward is with him. Mm. There was a Christmas morn, and it was wonderful in his first advent. Can I remind us? There will be another in his second advent. (laughs) And whatever Christmas is, and whatever that day was, when Jesus took on flesh to come and be on, uh, with us, wait till he calls us to be with him. And his promise is that where he is, we will be also. And he's bringing new creation again. And we will be with him there. That's the reward. And how will he treat us? Look at the absolute tenderness portrayed in verse 11. And, and tell me if you're a Christ follower, if this not, has not been your experience with the Lord Jesus Christ. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather his lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. How many times have you gone to the Lord in your sin, in your weakness, in your shame, in your sorrow, in your disillusionment, in your disappointment, in your exile, and found him to be the kind of God who comes to you with comfort and picks you up like a a lamb that left the 99 that he's gone to follow and find and puts you on his bosom and carries you. (laughs) That's the Lord Jesus Christ we serve. I close with this as we think about the first advent. Maybe you've been tempted to look at the news of the day, to doom scroll through the endless feeds of dread and gloom brought to us by the media. Maybe you've started to feel like evil's winning. Maybe you've been frustrated that those who stand against God and his Messiah seem to be gaining places of power and privilege in our country and in our world. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're worried that because of your sins, because of your repeated wrestling and failing, that maybe, just maybe, God has gotten tired of you and abandoned you. Maybe you sinned too many times and now God's left you. And you don't have any hope. To us, this message is given. To us, to those who are mired in the day's news, God says, behold your God, I am reigning. In Isaiah 44, 6, he says it like this. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock I know of none other. That's our God, steadfast and sure. Jesus says it like this, I will build my church 
and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So get your eyes off the news and put them on your Savior. Stop doom-scrolling death and start reading the word of life. Jesus is unstoppable. In his first coming, he defeated death, hell, and the grave. And no power in heaven and on earth can stop him from coming again to banish the very presence of sin from our reality and usher in new creation and everlasting life. What he began on Christmas morning, he will finish. And that's our hope. So don't be disturbed by those who look like they're winning in this world. It's just a shadow of reality. This world is a temporary vapor, the Bible says, here today and gone tomorrow. But there is a truth that will endure forever. And the truth is, Jesus is Lord and Savior. In reality, God reigns, Jesus won, and he is coming to take us home again. To those who fear that God has left you, I say, his promises are sure. And he promised never, ever, 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 ever to leave those who are blood-bought. Never to leave you or forsake you. Today, if you're worried about the world we live in, or you're worried about your past, I say along with Isaiah, from God, comfort, comfort my people. In Christ Jesus, the war has ended. In Christ Jesus, your iniquity is pardoned. That's why the angels said, glory to God and peace on earth to those with whom he is well pleased. As we celebrate Advent, we, we don't celebrate the way the world does with false hope in some gifts under a tree in twinkling lights and what amounts to a lot of distraction. We celebrate by remembering the true story of a God who saw his people in exile because of their sin and knocked down every barrier for his glory to come to them. And he as a shepherd dwells with us now to keep us until we are back home with God the Father through the blood of God the Son, led by God the Spirit. Amen? Merry Christmas. Let me pray for us, and then I'm, we'll continue uh, this worship service by taking the Lord's Supper and remembering both his first advent and his second. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. How would we know anything, Lord, if you had not revealed it to us? We are a people in exile from your presence. And our vain imaginations lead us into living, chasing things that can never satisfy. But the way the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 2, Lord, we just do the things that our mind and our heart and our body's desires will us to. And somehow in them, though they have failed us thousands of times, we think that by chasing another idol, by giving over to indulgence and sin one more time, that maybe we'll find satisfaction that we've never found before 
in our insanity, Lord, we turn to other things but you over and over again, expecting them to do something for us. And to to us living in exile, you sent your word that through it you would be revealed to us and we could know you. That by it, Lord, we would know what is expected of us and the promises you've given us to take us home. And what is expected, Lord, is not good works that we should build a highway back to you, but surrender to you as King of Kings who has come to us. Thank you, Lord, for Christmas. Thank you, Lord, for humiliating yourself to become as one of us, to die a death of a criminal and like the worst of us, so that whosoever believes would not perish, but have everlasting life. We look forward to your second coming, Lord, where all is righted and all wrongs are undone and we will be with you forever. Keep our minds set on that as we live this life for your glory. In Jesus' name.